Hi, my name's Matt Barnhill, and welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're watching online. Uh, oh, a month or two ago, oh, two or three months ago, Kenny reached out to me, and he said, Hey, Matt, we're going to do this series on that we're calling Relationship Status, and would you be willing to kick it off around the topic of vulnerability? And uh, very vulnerably, I said, I know nothing about that, Kenny. But uh, if, and he said, well, n none of us do either. So I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so that's what we're going to, we're going to start this series off. I think it's uh, uh, four messages and I'm, I got the first go at it. And we're going to talk about vulnerability. Vulnerability is a powerful powerful thing. It's both a noun and a verb. It's a behavior. It's a thing uh, in our personality, our relational style. And it has incredible value at causing us to grow. And I hope over the next few minutes, I'm able to persuade you to at least be more open to the role of vulnerability in your life. Vulnerability uh, in our vernacular oftentimes is used synonymously with another word, authenticity. So I'm going to talk about it today in b using both those terms, because you're really you can have one without the other. But you, there's when you're vulnerable, you're also authentic. But you can be authentic without being vulnerable, and you'll see what I mean here in a second. Vulnerability is defined as sharing parts of our lives that are unresolved, unfinished, broken, or affected. It's also sharing parts of our life with someone that if they chose, they could hurt us with it. Now, authenticity is defined as living a life where we can consistently tell the truth about who we are and what is so for us. Has anyone ever said, you need to say what is so for you? Well, that's what we're talking about when we, when we use the term authenticity. Well, here's what, I, here's what I hope to do in the next few minutes. And it is not a small task, I want you to know. I mean, as I think about it in my own life, I'm going, at my age and the mountain, the, the times I've been around the mountain, uh, I haven't come to a place of vulnerability easily. Nobody does. So I know this is a big ask, but here's, here's what I want you to hear. I'm asking you to consider and believe that living a life of authenticity and vulnerability is the life that leads to, and I'll give you a handful of things that I just thought of as I was reflecting. One is better relationships. Thus, that's why Kenny said, hey, Matt, can you give us, can you lead this series with a message on vulnerability? It's a relationship series because most of us know that most of the time when we're vulnerable, that, that has the best chance at causing us to have a better or healthier relationship. Secondly, an abundant life. Authenticity and vulnerability help usher in, bring about, grow, enrich what Scripture calls the abundant life. I'd say a better life. I'd say a richer life, richer in terms of richer relationships. 
a healthier life, as I said earlier. I would go as far as to say your best life. And here's my favorite one of all. Living a life of authenticity and vulnerability will enable you to lead a life that is not someone else's life. Think about that. Think about your day. Think about this past week. Think about this last year. How much would you say was a life that you led that was not someone else's life? We hear it used in all kinds of different vernacular. We hear people say, I found my own voice, or I came to terms with where I fit in this, or what is so for me, saying what is so for me. That's what I mean by not living someone else's life or someone else's preferences, but one that you can own and embrace as yours. That's what authenticity and vulnerability leads us to live a life that is not someone else's life. We need to make the distinction between authenticity and vulnerability because you can be authentic without being vulnerable, but when you're vulnerable, you're also authentic. And I'll give you an example of this. I was in a men's group once, and it was a great men's group. It was very in-depth. There was a lot of vulnerability in this men's group. And one of the guys one night said, uh, he asked the question, as a man, what is it that you want? And one guy said, I would like one more day with my father who died three years ago. You can hear the authenticity and vulnerability in his statement. Another guy said, I would like my children to grow up, move away, and miss me. Hear the vulnerability and the authenticity in his response. And a third guy said, I would like my children to grow up, move away, and miss me too. But if they don't miss me, I would at least like them to grow up and move away. (laughs) So I'm thinking that's not that vulnerable. However, it may have been incredibly vulnerable for him because he was saying something at the risk of going at these other guys judging him in some way for wanting his kids to get lost. I mean, you've been here long enough for crying out loud. Move away. If you miss me, that's fine. Just move away. (laughs) So I want to give you from Scripture three questions that I believe if you will answer these three questions on a regular basis in your life, you will lead a life that's increasing in these two things that I think cause you to have a better life. And that's vulnerability and authenticity. And they come from one of the very first story, very uh, uh, early stories in scripture, story of Adam and Eve. It's in Genesis chapter three. I'm going to pick it up in verses 6 through 13. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he asked, Where are you? He answered, 
Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the first question we're going to look at, which I think is a, was an incredibly uh, compelling question, however, it's incredibly simple, is the question that the Lord asks Adam and Eve. He asks, where are you? Just where are you? Now, remember, when God asks a question, if Scripture is true, and I believe it to be so, He's really hoping that us answering the question will have some sort of transformational work in us. So when God says to you and I, He says, Hey, Matt, where are you? Implied is that I'll go, I'm here behind this tree hiding. How'd I get here? Where are you? Here's different versions of the same question. Are you hiding? God knows where you are, by the way. You're, you're not effective at hiding from God. You're probably effective at hiding from others and from people in general, but you're not effect, none of us are good at hiding from God. So it's, it's not about you. It's just true of all of us. Here's other, here's other variations of the question. Where are you in relationship to me? Where are you in your marriage? Where are you in your family? Where are you in your church? Where are you in your career? Where are you in uh, as a dad? Where are you as a mom? Where are you as an employee? Where are you at your in your in your office environment? Where are you? Are you hiding? Are you hiding? We've all heard the, the phrase or the term, fake it till you make it. Well, that's hiding. Fake it till you make it is hiding. This was the mantra that most of us learned as we grew up. What most children learn is to hide the parts of themselves that they believe others don't want to see. We learn to hide the worst and only show the best. Adam and Eve had become aware of their nakedness or the ways that they, quote, didn't measure up. And they had this sense of, and we have to hide it. We have to hide the fact, we have to hide our, uh, that which makes us feel ashamed and exposed and naked. We're faking it. Authenticity is a gateway to personal transformation and freedom. Inauthenticity leads to a life of shame and hiding. And listen to me, it leads to a life of working way too hard at pretending. You, you and I both know how fatigued we can become from spending the day or the week or the last year pretending something. How many people have told me in the confidentiality of a counseling office, I'm tired of leading this double life. I can't pretend any longer. 
They literally say, I would rather deal with the consequences of the thing, whatever the thing is, than what I'm dealing with in pretending like I've been doing. Do I care more about the approval of others than being true to myself? Because most of us think authenticity will reveal just how broken I am. When we begin to learn and live out who we are, imperfections and all, authenticity and vulnerability bring about a freedom and creativity that is powerful and life-giving. That's the good news. Here's the less than good news. Some would call it bad news. Is that the most important place to begin being authentic about is around our underlying issues. It's the parts of us that we've worked so hard to hide. Now, I'm about to say something that will be the most challenging thing you'll hear me say today. And I want to to say on the front end of what I'm about to say, resist shutting down and, and quit listening. Resist your urge to shut down and stop listening, okay? And, and here's, um, here's what I say. There is nothing about you that you need to hide. There's nothing about you that you need to hide. Not having to be perfect, having parts of ourselves that are unfinished, and living a life of learning is a life that leads to our best self. It's also a life that the world around us is craving. I promise you, the people around you are craving you and I being authentic in their presence. Transformation lies in the realm of what we don't know that we don't know. And we all have issues that we're aware of, that we're aware of and we hide those issues and, if we, and we work really hard not to let anyone else see them. Are you afraid? Are you hiding because of shame or a sense of failure or rejection or that you don't think you measure up or you're inadequate in some way? God's cure, His remedy, and His healing for fear and shame is His love. It's not even His holiness, but it's His love. Now, it's an, it's an amazing love. It's the kind of love that you won't find anyplace else. But that's His cure for the things that cause us to want to hide. We cannot be, I know you've already raised this issue in your head, we cannot be vulnerable with everyone because some people aren't safe, quite frankly. And to be vulnerable with some people would not be wise. A safe place is where the following exists. There's no shaming. There's no preaching in the worst sense of the word. I get what we're doing here today. There's no preaching. There's no thinking less than. There's no judging. And there's no fixing. When you're with people where that, where that is present, you're not going to feel safe and you're going to resist being vulnerable. And I would, I would encourage you not to be vulnerable with someone who's not safe. But when you're with people who are safe, it's important that you start this process of being vulnerable and authentic. Safe 
spaces allow us to wonder about our underlying issues and discover what we don't know about ourselves that we don't know. We must have relationships where we can say anything and be safe. You can start by being the safe person you're looking for in others. I'll never forget one day I was in the workroom of a church I was working at. And this is where the copy machine was and the mail, the mail center and whatnot. And there were about uh, myself and five other people in the room. Uh, I remember this distinctly. And one of the people in the workroom while I was in there asked me, Matt, how's your daughter doing? I had a daughter who had just gotten married and she married a boy in the uh, Air Force, a man in the Air Force, and they had uh, moved away to an Air Force base across the country. And uh, she asked me, how are they doing? And I said, not horribly vulnerable, but a little vulnerable. I said, uh, well, you know, they're struggling. They're struggling to find their place among the other married couples and relationships and find a church, and they're struggling. That's what I said. And another, another woman who was in the workroom who was standing over here out of my sight, she responded by saying, oh, is there trouble in paradise? And I thought, what an interesting response. Uh, and I, I mean, it didn't take a lot, but I had some discernment that she had envy and she had jealousy, quite frankly, of the family that I have. And she made that comment, and I just remember registering in my mind, she is not safe. I have no intention, knowingly, of ever saying anything vulnerable specifically to her again. The other four women in the room, incredibly safe. And I didn't regret saying it, but I did make note, she's not safe. That's the first question. Where are you? It's a great question that we have to answer throughout our lives. The second one is this. Verse 11, he says, Who told you that you were naked? I would change the question a little bit to, Who have you been listening to? And I'm not saying I would change it in Scripture. I think God did just fine the, the way He did it. <laughs> I'm just saying, for our purposes here, the question, Who have you been listening to? Because it's a pertinent question, and here's why. Whoever you listen to has the most influence in your life. And whoever has the most influence in your life is Lord of your life. So don't tell me Jesus is Lord of your life when somebody else is someone you listen to more than Him. Because whoever you listen to has the most influence in your life, and whoever has the most influence in your life is Lord of your life. Whose opinion of you matters the most? Whose vote can you not live without? You get this, you get the sense? They did what they did because of the influence of who they were listening to. The person they were, the person, i.e., the serpent, i.e., Satan, the devil himself, was had won their trust. He raised the question early on, and this is a, another great message, and that is: did God really say? Which caused them to go, can we really trust him? And in that dialogue that they had, they somehow decided, oh, we can, trust, we can trust this voice in our life. And the result of that was, quite frankly, disastrous. Who have you been listening to? Because whoever you're listening to has the most influence in your life. Years ago, uh, my dad died 13 years ago. 
And uh, my dad was a great dad. Uh, he was a loving dad. He was steady dad. He was faithful dad. Uh, he had incredible qualities. Uh, but from time to time, he was a grumpy dad. He was agitated and aggravated. And he had a fluctuating mood that would sometimes be grumpy. And after he died, I had the impulse. I said, you know, I think I'm going to go get some therapy about my own dad issues. Because I had this sense that my relationship with him was, in light of what it was, that there's some stuff there that I, I want to resolve. It was, for lack of a better term, unfinished business. So I went and found me this therapist in uh, Bel Air, this Jewish woman in Bel Air. And uh, quite frankly, she was, she was so incredibly helpful. She was so effective. And I just, I just knew I needed to find someone who would ask me questions that I didn't know to ask myself because I'd answered all the questions I knew to ask myself. So I get in there and I'm in therapy and I went to her for quite a while and I remember I learned a lot of stuff. There were a handful of things that were really aha moments. One day she asked me, uh, Matt, what would you do when your dad came home? And I thought, I never thought of that. What would I do when my dad came home? And she meant when I was a, when I was a young boy. And all of a sudden I had this memory uh, that was vivid of being seven, eight years old, probably, maybe six, maybe nine, but in that time frame, where it's about 5, 5.30 in the afternoon, I'm in my bedroom, and I hear that my dad comes in the house, and I go to my bedroom door, and I crack the door and peek out of it, and I'm looking for my dad in the den, trying to assess what kind of mood is he in. If he's in a good mood, I'm gonna come out and go play, or come out and be, be with them. If he's in a bad mood, I'm going to close the door and just so quietly they don't even know I opened it and then just hang out in my room until mom or dad says, uh, hey, Matt, it's time for dinner. Then I'll come out. And she said, uh, uh, she goes, that's interesting. Does that little boy ever show up in your adult life who's uh, peeking through the door? I thought, just like that, I was reminded of almost everything every annual performance evaluation I've ever had as an adult, working in hospitals and churches and different settings where uh, every year you go over how, how your job's going and so forth and so on. And in almost every performance evaluation, I hear something like this. Matt, we really love you. You're doing a good job. Uh, our organization is better because you're here. You bring great value, uh, so forth and so on. However, there's this one thing. And they didn't all say it exactly alike, but it was basically the same message. And it was this. There's this one thing, Matt. I wish you would speak up more in meetings. I wish you would jump in the fray. You always have good input, but uh, I have to draw it out of you. I wish when we're discussing X, Y, or Z that you would jump in there with your input and say what is so for you. Uh, they all said, Matt, assert yourself more. And I realized that seven-year-old boy is still peeking through the door. And what am I doing peeking through the door? I'm trying to find out if it's safe because I don't want to be vulnerable.
I don't want to be courageous. I don't want to walk into something that is unsafe. And for that time in my life, it was just unsafe emotionally. It wasn't unsafe physically. But next thing you know, I'm 45 years old and I'm still sitting around a table and there's uh, sometimes tense conversation going on. And I'm sitting back, not inserting myself because what am I doing? I'm peeking through the door trying to find out, is it safe enough to be vulnerable? Now I'll have you know, there were some of those conversations where it was clear to everybody, it is not safe to be vulnerable. If you, if you are vulnerable and you say what is so for you and it's in disagreement with somebody's opinion, that would be the beginning of the end. But quite frankly, that's no way to live. That's living somebody else's life. That's not living your own life. Uh, my, my primary self-criticism of all those situations was I stayed too long. It's just no way to live. So safety's a big deal when it comes to vulnerability. Who are you listening to? I, I said differently, whose voice is going off in your head telling you what you should do or not do? Is it you at a younger age where, when it perhaps wasn't safe to jump into the fray? Or is it you now listening to God saying, hey God, what would you have me do here? God, how would you have me agree with you concerning this situation? Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? If, you're, if your lack of vulnerability and authenticity, uh, if, if you lack vulnerability and authenticity, it may be you're listening to a voice that's not the voice you need to be listening to in the first place, especially if you recognize I'm doing a lot of hiding in my life. I'm doing a lot of faking it, fake it till you make it kind of behaviors in my life. It may be time that I exercise some courage and go, God, here we go. I'm going to say what is so uh, because I think living vulnerably and authentically is a better way to live. I think it is too. A starting place for authenticity and vulnerability is the public, private, and, and what I would call secret self-inventory. All of us wear masks in different settings. Our public self is the person we're working the hardest for people to see. We want to look our very best and we want people to think we're our very best. Our private self shows more of our brokenness, anger, judgment, selfishness, etc. We usually feel safe in our private self and we're more prone to believe our family will not reject us when, when we're not our best. That's one of the reasons for those of you who are adult parents, your kids will say he, he or she acts differently at home than they do when we show up at the church for you. That's because at home is your private self and you probably feel like it's safer to be that way. And then our secret self is the part of us that nobody knows. This is where we keep our secrets, some of which are dark. They stay hidden because we believe if anyone knew our worst secrets, we would not be worthy of love and acceptance. Our secret self is full of hidden things that we've committed to not letting anyone know or see. But here's the deal. Our goal, and even if it's not your goal, the Holy Spirit's goal in your life, listen to this, is to merge all of these into one self. The idea is that we don't have to tell everyone all our secrets, 
but that we've revealed all our secrets to someone. We are our best selves when we don't have any secrets. Secrets make us sick, or said differently, we're as sick as our secrets. How awesome would it be to be okay with being imperfect, dedicated to a life of learning? How awesome would it be that you would feel okay about yourself knowing that you're imperfect, however dedicated to a life of learning? What if we could be the same person at work as we are when we're with our families and even when we are by ourselves? I have a friend that says, sooner or later we all wake up in Chicago. And you go, what does that have to do with anything? What he means by that is sooner or later you will wake up somewhere where nobody knows you and you will find yourself in your secret, private, and public self all sitting there on the same place, probably in a hotel room, trying to decide what person am I is going to show up when I walk out of this room? Who's going to show up? The healthy self is one where those three things are merged and they're not three different selves that we're constantly having to manage. Am I in my public? Am I in my private? Am I in my secret? How much of this private knows my secret and vice versa? What if our best self showed up in all those places? Practicing authenticity and vulnerability as part of who we are will lead to the freedom experienced in only having oneself. Well, that's the second question. Who have you been listening to? The third question is the last question in this passage, and it's this. What is this you have done? So he asked Adam and he said, Adam blamed his wife. And he said, you know, the woman, he blamed God and his wife. He goes, you know, the woman you gave me, well, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then he asked Eve, what is this you have done? And then she appropriately, she said, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate, which was exactly what happened. The serpent did deceive her and she ate. And then she gave it to her husband who was right there with her and he ate too. You've heard that confession is good for the soul, and I would say confession is essential for the soul. Your soul will uh, shatter without it. Confession simply means to say the same as. When we confess something, we're basically agreeing with God. God calls something a sin in our life. If we confess a sin, what that means is we just simply agree with Him. Uh, Heavenly Father, you're right. That is destructive in my life. I agree. I agree that this is not good for me. What you say is hurtful and destructive. I agree with you. That's a confession. That is confession. To simply say the same as what God says about something. So if God says it's a sin, don't you say it's a problem. If God says it's a sin, don't you say it's a struggle or a weakness or a shortcoming? If God says it's a sin, let's agree with Him. It's a sin. And, a sin, and, and the reason God hates sin is because sin is destructive to, to His kids whom He loves so much. Most of our secrets are around things that we think are uh, in God's category of sins. Secrets make us sick, and we're as sick as our secrets. Find someone who you feel incredibly safe with and say, 
I want you to know how I'm agreeing with God about this thing that He has revealed in my life that needs my attention. That vulnerability will set you free from the power and the stronghold of that sin. I recently read a great book. It's by a Duke professor named Dan Arley. The title of the book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. What a great title. <laughs> the Honest Truth About Dishonesty, how, to, how We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Basically, the book summarizes a ton of research that Arley is and Arley is astounded by how widespread people's tendency is to cheat, be self-centered, and be deceitful. His discovery is that we're driven by two primary uh, motivations, which I didn't think required a lot of research to figure this out, but apparently so, and, the, and they are this. One is we want to receive selfish gain. With that is we want to avoid pain. Okay, I could have told him that. We want it so much that we're willing to lie or cheat or deceive for it. So we want what we want and we're willing to cheat to get it. The second thing his research, uh, he says he found out, was that we want to be able to look in the mirror and think well of ourselves. That means we all want to view ourselves as basically good, honest, honorable people. Now, clearly, these two motivations <laughs> conflict with one another. We want uh, selfish gain, avoid pain, and have what we want when we want it. And secondly, we want people to think of us as honorable when they look at us. And we want to think of ourselves as honorable when we look in the mirror. So how can we enable our selfishness with deceit on one hand, but at the same time view ourselves as honest, wonderful, noble people? Airily says this, this is where our amazing cognitive flexibility comes into play. Thanks to this human skill, as long as we cheat by only a little bit, we can benefit from cheating for selfish gain and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings, unquote. Now, what Airily calls our amazing cognitive flexibility, the Apostle Paul calls in Romans 1.18, the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. <laughs> I'll give you one tiny example of our willingness to lie. Again, this book just gives empirical verification for what's all over the place in Scripture. This is just one tiny example, and you're going to love it. Airely says, over the course, remember he's a professor at Duke, so I'm sure this is only true at Duke University. But he says, over the course of many years of teaching, I have, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. It's amazing. Guess, guess which relative most often dies? Anybody want to take a wild guess? It's grandma. That's exactly right. I'm not making this stuff up. Mike Adams, a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, has done research on this. He has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. 
Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. <laughs> students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPAs. The moral of all this is if you are a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. It'll kill you, especially if he or she is a dim bulb grandchild. <laughs> we have seven grandsons, <clears throat> all of whom want, who all of whom love to hunt and fish, and they strike me as pretty smart kids. But I'm just afraid that when they go to college, they're going to spend more time hunting and fishing and less time studying. And uh, Julia, Julia is going to be in peril. I just know this is not going to work out well for her <laughs> in light of this research that's done on how often grandmas died when their kid is about to, when their grandkid is about to take a final exam. Oh, it's a horrible thing. When it comes to answering this question, what is this you have done? Like all transformational work, this is done a little bit at a time over a lifetime a little bit at a time over a lifetime. I'm asking you to step out of your comfort zone. Notice that people do not reject you when you're authentic and vulnerable. You will find that people are actually drawn to you. It's a paradox. The thing you fear the most, quite frankly, is the thing that will cause the opposite to happen. People are craving, we are craving in one another authenticity and vulnerability, especially in marriage, but not only in marriage. I'm asking you to take that step out of the comfort zone. The more you practice, the more you'll experience the freedom that this kind of work will lead to. The more freedom you experience, the more of your best self that you're going to see, the more of your best self that you're going to be. One tool in helping you do this is having a consistent, reflective life. Don't overthink this. Read your Bible. Pray. Meditate. We must have quiet, uninterrupted time where we can wonder about what is going on underneath the surface of our lives. Uh, one of my favorite Psalms is 139, the first few verses, and it goes like this. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you will live your life answering these three questions, where are you or where am I? Who have I been listening to? And what is this I have done? And then share the answers to those questions with vulnerability and authenticity to the safe people that God either has or will bring into your life, then you'll experience that someday godly men and women will bury you, mourn deeply for you, miss you, 
and celebrate your life well lived. And in the meantime, you'll experience a richer life, a better life, and a more abundant life, but especially a life that is yours and not someone else's. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the things you ask us. Thank you for the ways you want to change us. Give us great courage in being the vulnerable, authentic people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.